This episode of Monster Bureau contains scenes with suicide, cannibalism, and a dog dies. Listener discretion is advised. Monsters creep from their lairs. Kraken entwining ships. Sasquatch slaying campers. Giant ants wrecking tanks. And one news bureau has you covered. Turn up the radio, gentle listeners. It's time for breaking news, fresh from the teletype. Welcome to... Monsters Bureau! Good day, gentle listeners. We have breaking news, fresh from the teletype. Dateline, May 9th in the year 2022. Wendigo attacks campers in an RV park near Winnipeg. A Wendigo ravaged an RV park last night in Ildeshen, Manitoba. The attack left five campers dead, 13 injured, and a town shocked by an out-of-season monster attack. The monster attacked the RV park around 6 p.m. local time, just as campers were settling in for a night of board games, barbecue, and folk songs. About 40 people had gathered around a fire on an unseasonably warm night in the Prairie Province. A dozen children frolicked nearby in a playground. Constable Jesse Germain said the Wendigo may have been lured by the smell of meat on the grill and kids playing near the forest's edge. Sizzling meat and screaming kids can be attractive meals for Wendigos. But the thing that stood out to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or Mounties, was the timing of the attack. Wendigos don't attack on warm nights. In fact, they're winter creatures and prefer bitter cold in isolated forests. It was nearly 18 degrees Celsius, or 70 degrees Fahrenheit, in the night of the attack, and it was in a suburb of Winnipeg. That's hardly ideal habitat. Stay tuned for a field report with Professor Michael Merle for those reasons. The Mounties said the attack started in the playground. The Wendigo, about the size of a camper van, ran from the woods and grabbed a cocker spaniel, ripping it in half. It then turned on the children, grabbing an eight-year-old boy and tossing him 20 meters into a nearby forest. The beast ran with the speed of an icy wind toward the barbecue pit. It took its bony claws and raked a 30-year-old man, leaving him to bleed to death in the smoldering pit. It then turned its skeletal elk head toward two women and killed them instantly with a shriek. Witnesses reported that after these three deaths, the monster appeared to weaken. Its lightning-fast slashing and clawing slowed to near-normal human speeds, but not before it flipped a camper over. The damaged vehicle caught fire and exploded, killing two people trapped inside. By this time, the Canadian Monster Repelling Force, or CMRF, arrived and fired a precision rocket grenade into the Wendigo's icy heart. The explosion shattered its heart and killed the monster. In all, five people died and 13 were injured. Most injuries included deep gashes to stomachs and backs, as well as bruises and broken bones. 
The eight-year-old boy survived but suffered a broken forearm. All injuries were treated at the Winnipeg Monster Emergency Center. Four people remain hospitalized due to blood loss. The deceased victims will be taken to the Wendigo Crematorium and burned to prevent a monstrous rebirth. The CMRF will continue to block the scene while they investigate. Wendigo attacks are not uncommon in the Prairie Province. One to two people a year become afflicted with the curse disease. Most of those happen between December and March. Researchers believe the condition is supernatural, but more research is needed to identify the type of curse. This is the first Wendigo attack to happen during mid-spring with temperatures above 5 degrees Celsius. Other springtime attacks happen during freak blizzards or arctic blasts. The CMRF will work with the Forest Monster Research Institute in Kenora, Ontario to find the reason behind this brazen Wendigo attack. And next up, we'll speak to Professor Michael Merle, president of the Forest Monster Research Institute, for more on Wendigos in the wild. One moment while I use our speed dial to connect with Professor Merle. Good day, Professor Merle. We have you live on Monster Bureau. Thank you for having me. Professor Merle, what are the current trends with Wendigos in Canada? Hmm, our research indicates an uptick in sightings from Saskatchewan through the Gaspé Peninsula in Quebec. They've become especially active in northern Manitoba and Algonquin National Park, which takes up a great deal of territory in Ontario. We must remain vigilant about possible encounters in parks and campsites in these areas. Wendigos are apex predators, and they're always aggressively looking to feed. Why are Wendigos always hungry? It deals with the curse they suffer from. It gives them an insatiable appetite for flesh. It could be humans, their favorite prey, or large mammals. You could imagine it as being driven mad by hunger 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And how does this curse spread? Mm, don't think of it as a disease like a virus or cancer. It's created by black magic. In order to become a Wendigo, the victim must already have a deep hunger or insatiable greed within them. It's compulsive. There are many people who have survived a Wendigo attack and never become one, which is unfortunate because I like more Wendigos to research. What conditions would trigger someone to get the curse? Most get the affliction by freezing during the coldest nights in winter and starvation, but we found that the Wendigo condition may evolve. Let's hold that question for later. Why would a Wendigo attack during a warm evening and outside its typical feeding season? Yes, that's the million loony question. We've requested the Wendigo's body be transferred to the Forest Monster Research Institute for necropsy. I hope the body holds up in transit. You see, most Wendigos dissolve into dust or mulch once they die. And this attack is very much an outlier. There's still too much we don't know. That area near Winnipeg is not its traditional territory. We'll have to do victim tracing to connect some dots. How would you describe its territory? 
Well, nearly all Wendigos prefer isolated forests and below freezing temperatures, but we found cases with new variants of Wendigos. New variants? Yes. A traditional Wendigo looks like a forest monster. They stand between 7 feet and 14 feet, have elk skulls for heads, are draped in fur pelts that hide a skeletal body underneath, and they can move as fast as an icy wind across the plains. Now, we believe there are two more human-like species. Would you describe them for our listeners? Of course. The first is easily confused with a zombie. Mm, The victim retains their height, but they become emaciated and chew their lips off, exposing their teeth and gums. And next, they become paper white and show signs of frostbite on their fingers and toes. But it's not even freezing out. These newer Wendigos don't have speed and strength like the Winnipeg attack. But they're just as ravenous. You said there are two new variants. What's the third type? Well, it's a bit harder to explain. It's more like a psychological disorder. The victim becomes obsessed with many, corporate power, and destroying what they think is a competitor. We found these instances with a few of the CEOs at international conglomerates. They can't stop acquiring companies, laying off hundreds to thousands of workers, and taking extreme bonuses. Before we close this segment, what can everyday people do to protect themselves from a Wendigo? The Winnipeg attack has changed a lot of our thinking on the subject. I'd ask people to look for new recommendations in the near future. But if you go camping, stay closer to the main entrance where it's easier to escape. And have a flare gun handy if you find yourself isolated in the woods. This will help rangers find you. And don't camp alone. Register your RV or campsite with authorities. And remain vigilant about your surroundings. If you hear a treacherous howl, and you smell rotting meat, that may mean a wendigo is in your area. You may have a few minutes to escape once you hear that. Leave the area as fast as you can. Thanks for your time, Professor Merle. And now we have a story from a reader based in New York. I got this letter from gentle listener Raymond from New York City. He claims his boss was attacked by a Wendigo while on an ice fishing trip this past January. Let's hear his story. It took Tim, my boss, and I nearly a day to get to his ice fishing spot, north of Kenora, Ontario, a plane from his home in New York City to Winnipeg, and a slow drive along icy roads deep into the woods to a town called Manaki. In January, Arctic cold settles on the land, an icy grip that sends all creatures into hibernation. Exposed skin freezes and splits in minutes. Your nose can turn black from frostbite, and God forbid if you get wet, you probably won't make it to someplace warm before hypothermia kills you. But we didn't come to Ontario in January to enjoy the cold. We were on assignment, Tim's last as a senior writer for a sporting and adventure magazine. When we return home, Tim will be the new publisher for the digital and print division, a merger of the two largest networks in sports entertainment. 
and he would have to make some decisions about the staff from our former rivals. On this trip, Tim planned to write about the latest lures for catching black crappie, walleyes, and lake trout. Our guides had also set some hunting time up. Tim had a license for deer and moose. He always wanted to bag a moose, although his wife didn't know where she'd put a trophy in their tiny condo in Battery Park on the southern tip of Manhattan. But the money he'd make as publisher would let them buy a bigger place. More space and more money had always been his goal. You see, Tim grew up poor in Maine. He knows what it's like to be cold and hungry, and he never wanted to feel those pangs or to shiver under a comforter with holes in it again. Our guide spoiled him too. They set up a red, heated shelter, drilled a hole, added a sonar to mark fish, equipped the icebox, and made a pot of coffee for him. All Tim had to do was take a rod, add some bait, and drop it down the hole. The tour company and local resort paid for it all just to get a little publicity. Tim even got to keep the fishing gear, cleats, bib, and parka. Tim told me to ask them to ship the shelter and sled for bonus coverage and a feature article. Take as much as you can if it's offered, he always said. We fished for a couple of hours without a nibble. The sonar hadn't marked any fish. Tim tried to call his guides to hop to another hole, but the calls would drop. He had barely a bar of reception on his cell phone, but he got a text out, and we were alone on the lake, isolated. The wind began to pick up a few minutes later. The tent shook from it, and cold seemed to creep in. We started to shiver, even though we had all this gear on. Tim checked the weather that morning, and the forecast had sunny skies, but bitter cold all day. He unzipped the shelter door and looked out. The snow washed out the details. It was all puffy white like a blanket of cotton balls. Gray, roiling skies appeared overhead, but it was sunny only a few hundred feet away. Tim stepped back in the shelter and reached for his phone. He hit his guide's contact number, but there was a long delay before he heard his phone connect. Something clawed at the side of the shelter and we heard a whisper like it was inside the tent. A woman's voice, maybe. She sounded weird. There was something wrong with her voice. The ringtone stopped, and Greg, one of our guides, had picked up. Tim told him that he needed help. There may be a drug addict or something like that outside the shelter. Greg told him to calm down and stay quiet. Seal up the tent and hold tight. Greg was on his way. Tim put the phone in the side pocket of his pocket and reached down to zip the shelter. A hand grabbed Tim's wrist as he began to zip. It clamped down hard and its nails dug into his parka and into his wrist. I heard him gasp and scream. It pulled him through the opening and threw him into the snow. He flailed around face down. That woman grabbed his parka by the hood and tossed him away from the shelter and he landed with a thud in a snowdrift. He looked stunned. He tried to roll on his back, but she pounced on him and shoved his face back into the snow. Her full weight was on his back, and she put her foot on his head and pushed down. And he had to be suffocating. Then she took her fingers and jabbed him in the right side, like stabbed him with them, and I could see blood on the snowbank. All I heard was muffled screams. 
A truck horn sounded and the monster let up. A gunshot rang out and the monster howled. This woman got hit in the shoulder and she took off. I finally got the courage to run over to Tim. He was groggy and his face had deep scrapes from rubbing the snow, like it was tiny daggers. He told me his vision was blurry. He could feel her fingers wiggling around inside him. And then he passed out from blood loss. The last thing Greg and I saw was a skeletal thin woman with matted blonde hair and a bloody hand disappear into the distance. Tim said he didn't remember much of that cold January day in Ontario. He remembers the pain, the rescue helicopter, and the fluorescent lights in the hospital. But then he fell into a coma for a few days. Tim said he had feverish dreams during that time. Dreams where he ate his son and gutted his wife. He felt joy at the thought of devouring his three-month-old boy. They'd repeat every night until he woke up. The police asked Tim questions about the woman who attacked him. He didn't have much to say because he didn't get a good look at her. Greg stopped by too. He said the RCMP or the Mounties looked for a few days after the attack, but no one found her. Tim came back to work a couple of months later. He had lost his middle-aged paunch, and he looked thinner than he should for a six-foot-two part-time hockey player. His suit was really loose on him. I made the arrangements for the meeting. That meeting. The one with both publishing company's executives. Tim opened the door to the boardroom, his private boardroom, and he was ready to take over his role as the new publisher. He was welcomed by the other executives and sat at the head of the table, a dark cherry oak table with ultra-modern black leather seats. I poured him a glass of bourbon on the rocks with a twist. It was time to get down to business. And the business was to boost profits and secure Tim's bonus. Looked at his peers sitting at the table, and he told me they were all interchangeable in their blue or gray suits and hair done by the same barber. To Tim, they were all overhead. They didn't do a thing to increase revenue so he could get a bigger bonus or stock options. Dead weight. Something to be thrown away so Tim could have more. He asked about marginal costs of doing business with the redundant writers and editors from the rival company. The consensus was to shift them to other magazines or websites under the new umbrella. But the projections indicated less profit. And Tim always wanted more money. It's what the shareholders want, after all. Well, that's corporate speak for hold the money. More profits meant a higher stock price, and that means compensation. Tim turned to the cabal of corporate executives and said the writers would be replaced by artificial intelligence. It could spin articles far faster than humans, and it had significantly less costs associated. Software doesn't need a 401k in health insurance, and that cuts into profit, and shareholders expect cost reductions after a merger. Tim looked down the table at the other managers and asked me to pass out the manila envelopes. He congratulated them on getting a beautiful buyout and said their office contents would be shipped home to them. They had three days to sign before they'd be eliminated and get nothing. As the executives filed out with their heads hung low, Tim sat counting how much would now go back to the bottom line. 
he could now shift that money into his compensation. Tim stretched out his arm and toward me and shook his empty glass. I'll take more. I quit the next morning. I couldn't stomach working for him anymore. About a month later, I heard from his wife, Eileen. She called me. Tim had grown abusive toward her. He had bitten her, and she was going to file for divorce. But then Tim's health took a turn for the worse. He got skinnier and skinnier, and his hair started to fall out. She took him to the hospital to check for cancer, but it came back negative. At the end of April, the worst thing happened. She caught Tim in the fridge, just mowing through all the food in it. He was only eating meat. She begged for him to stop and to get to a mental hospital. He got up and shoved her to the ground and got on top of her, and he bit her badly on the shoulder, ripped a chunk right out of her. And then the baby cried. Tim went to get little Eddie. Eileen said he just leered at the baby for a while, then picked him up. She had already called 911 by now, and the police were on the way. Tim took the baby to the living room and opened the sliding doors to the balcony. Eileen said Tim changed physically in those few moments. He became more skeletal, his ribs jutting out. His eyes were sunken in, he was pale, almost white and his lips were pulled back and exposed his teeth. Tim looked down at her and down at the baby, and he licked him. But something came over him. He dropped the baby on the sofa and looked at Eileen. For a moment, she said he looked normal again. And then he just turned and jumped off the balcony. Tim fell 30-some floors to his death, but I think he had to to save the only things he loved. Anyway, I think whatever that woman had passed it to Timmy. Thanks for your story, Raymond. And thanks to you, gentle listeners, for joining this episode of Monster Bureau. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate, review, share, and tell all of your friends about it. If you like ghost stories, check out my other podcast, Ghostly Activities. Until then, take care and be on the lookout for monsters. <laughs>